like, I need a little bit of help. So I go to a, a website, uh, the Gospel Coalition. They have some MP3s. That you can listen to, you know, godly, well-respected preachers and uh, preaching. And so there was just, I go on to Ro- Gospel Coalition, and Romans 1, a ton of messages. You know, Ro- Romans 2, a ton of messages. The second half of Romans 3, I mean, there's just a plethora of messages from 21 to 31. In Romans 1, 3, 1 and through 8, there's like four or five verses, or four or five MP3s. And then I'm like, well, I know John Piper, a, a pastor that I respect a lot. I know he preached through Romans, so I'll go and hear what he said. So he preached this text, but then he used this the next week. He preached on why are there hard texts in the Bible? And he said this, and it's a quote from this. He says, I found this passage to be about as hard a paragraph to deal with as any in this letter. The difficulty of following the train of thought in this paragraph is enormous. I just listened to a sermon on this text from Martin Lloyd-Jones from 40 years ago in London. He commented at the outset that this is one of the most difficult paragraphs, not only in Romans, but also in the whole Bible. Piper's still speaking. He says, I wrestled so hard trying to figure out how Paul's argument works here, and I prayed so fervently that God would give me light to guard me from error that I felt forced to ask God, what does this mean that you have ordained such a difficult paragraph to be in your word? <clears throat> so here's, here we have uh, an easy text for me to, to deal with today. I mean, just from the outset, it even, there's even apparent contradictions. If you look at verse 1, it says, what advantage is the Jew? Oh, much in every way. But yet in verse 9, he says, are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. So there's the challenge of that. There's, there's other challenges in here. And so I talked to Steve last week. I said, you know, Steve, this is, this is a tough text. This is, this is really hard. And um, he said, well, you can quote me in saying, yeah, that's, it was, it's really hard, which is why we needed to bring the ace, the, the sharpshooter in, you know, to, to, to correctly uh, preach. And so, unfortunately, recently, uh, the last uh, week, I haven't felt like the sharpshooter. I felt like the, uh, the eight-year-old boy in Christmas who just got his BB gun who's trying to shoot, you know, a dime 20 yards away in a, in a driving snowstorm is, is how I feel. But, um, and so, in fact, it was so hard in some ways. There's many times I thought, maybe I should just <laughs> go somewhere else. But the truth is, many times, the message that we want to preach and the message we want to hear is not the message we need to hear. Um, this week has been a hard week and hardships in life are, I think, like hard parts in the scripture. They teach us and show us our dependence for God and our absolute, his absolute beauty in a special and unique way. But I'd like to pray before we get started because I need his help. Lord, I do pray for your word to work in my heart again and to work in these, the hearts of your, um, those that are here. I thank you for your word. It is all inspired. So there is a reason you've given us this hard text. There is a reason that you've given um, hard text in the Bible for us to learn, for us to see a part of you that maybe we would not see in, in, a, in another way. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before we dive in, I want to do a review of Romans very quickly, what we've, how we've gone so far. Steve has um, 
Steve left off about six weeks ago, so I think it's important. Romans is a book to the Romans. He's writing to both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles. And he says in verse 16 of chapter 1, if you go back a page or so, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. So he's talking about what, what Romans is. It's, a, it's the gospel. And he says not only that, in verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel. For to you who are in Rome. And so he wants them to help, to help them understand what the gospel is. And so he starts, then starting in verse 18, he gives them the bad news. Because that's how the gospel needs to start. It needs to start with the bad news. And so he gives them terrible news. He says, God is evident in creation, but those who are without the law, who don't see him, are still condemned. They're under the wrath of God. But then he goes to chapter 2 and he says, not just the Gentiles, but the Jews also, are going to be accountable. Because... They're even more accountable because they've had the law, but they haven't submitted to it. They've sinned, they've not followed, they've trespassed. So he says, all are guilty. Both Jews and Greeks are all condemned. And so that's how he finishes chapter 2. And then he picks up in verses 9, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, kind of a a summary, kind of a a reiteration of chapter 2 and and chapter 1. Just again saying, all are all guilty. Are Jews any better off? No, not at all, for they have, I have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So this passage is really a parenthesis, kind of a, a not really following entirely his, the whole train of thought. What 3, 1 through 8 is, is he's addressing those Jews who had problems with what he said in chapter 2. What he said was so difficult and hard, and that he had said it before, he acknowledged that these Jews would have a difficult time, and so he takes a little sidebar, a little rabbit trail, and addresses these concerns. And so he asks four questions. He addresses, there's a number of questions, there's actually nine in here, but there's really four main questions. And so we would, and it's really about the the complaints or the, the problems that the Jews have. So the question is, you know, why do we even preach this at all? Not only is it hard, but it's written to Jews who are having problems with what he's saying about their Jewishness. Well, there's an overarching question of these four questions, as we will see. And the question I want to ask you is, what do you do when a fundamental belief about God or yourself that you believe to be true has shown to be false? When that foundation that you built your life upon or built yourself upon has been knocked out from underneath you, how do you respond? If you are confronted with a challenge to your belief system, what do you say? What do you do? Well, that's what has happened to these Jews. You see, and so they say here in verse 1, he says, then what advantage is the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Question number one. And he's speaking precisely from, this is stemming mainly from chapter two, some of the most amazing verses for a Jew to have heard at that time. Starting verse 28, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the law. Letter. His praise is not from men, 
but from God. You know, they thought that being a Jew was something that was inherited, that it was something that was passed down. It was based on their parents and following the specified set of guidelines. Circumcision was a matter, an outward appearance. But Paul says, no, it's not. It's a matter of the heart. It's a, something that's inwardly. You know, I think some of you parents would understand this argument. Uh, you, you know, you, your son or daughter wants to go play at their friend's house. And so they ask you if they can go over and to Sally's house. And you say, no, you know, today's not a good day. And the response is, you never let me go play with them ever. At which not realize, they don't realize that they've gotten to play with them for the last three days. So you, they, they take the argument far lo- farther than you've ever said, than you ever, a step further than you ever wanted it to be. And so he answers in, in verse 3, in verse 2, is there any advantage of being a Jew? Yes, there's much advantage, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So there's the answer. They've been given the precepts of God. These Jews have been given the very words of God. Of all the nations, he chose this Jewish nation. The Almighty God that speaks and things are formed. This God that knows every struggle, not only in your life, but everyone here. This God that no human being can look at without falling down and trembling in fear. He revealed himself to to them. In fact, some of the prophets, when they opened their mouths. They actually uttered the very words of God to them. God has a special place in his heart for the Jews. Deuteronomy 4.8, he says, And what great nation is there that his statutes and rules so righteous as, the, his, as all his, this law that I set before you today? Or in Psalm 147, he says, He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. So by application for us to this hard question, number one, what is your position before God? You know, I was speaking to somebody today, uh, this week that said, well, I believe in God as though that somehow makes you in good relationships with him. You know, the book of James says, even the demons realize this and believe this. Some say, well, you know, I had godly parents. I was, sa- I was saved because I grew up in a Christian home. At which Paul would say, salvation, again, is not an inherited thing from earthly parents. Others would say, well, you know, I was baptized or I grew up in a, in a church that proclaimed a, the, the word of God. Going and following a set of rules or, or doing those things does not make you a Christian any more than going to a, a gym makes you a good basketball player. Some say, well, I'm just kind of generally good. I think I'm, I'm a good person. Not realizing that what Paul would say is everything we do has a tinge of evil and wickedness in it. We are totally depraved. It doesn't mean that everything we do is wrong. We do some things good, but nothing we do is completely perfect with, with innocent motives. You know, I was... And so you would... So many would say, well, what advantage is there? What, what, what good is it going to church? What good is it having godly parents? 
by application, I would say, much in every way. You were able to hear and you were able to be spared from the, from the difficulties and the lives of not knowing Christ. You know, I was thinking about when I was growing up, I listened to a, a radio show uh, called Unshackled. I just found out they're still, it's still around. I can't believe it. I'll have to get, get some of those. But um, I don't know if you know the, the story, but it was, uh, it took, well, it started in Chicago, Pacific Garden Mission. It, there's a, it's a homeless shelter, I think, and I think it's still going. But what would happen is they would come, you know, the homeless would come and they would, uh, lives would be transformed through the pro- proclamation of the, the gospel. And what they would do is they would take the lives of some of these people and they would do a right radio dramatization. And some of them, I mean, were just incredible. We're just amazing stories. And I don't know about you, but I know have a couple friends or know some people who have lives that could could be on unshackled. You know, I don't have a story like that. I grew up in a godly home, grew up with in a with godly parents, grew up in church. I have other friends who have a story that's far different. But what one of them said is, you know what? Yeah, my, my testimony is amazing, but I would have far rather have had yours. You know, what advantage is growing up in a godly home? Well, much in every way. It doesn't, it, be clear, it, is not, it has, has no validity for you being saved, for being in right standing with Christ. But there is much advantage in every way. You know, it's interesting, even non-Christians, many non-Christians believe this. I, was, I took a road trip to the, uh, this week, seven-hour road trip down to Kentucky with a, with a co-worker. And we conversation tor- turned toward the spiritual. And we were talking about, you know, the state of, of the country and everything. And he said, uh, he's an older man, but he even acknowledged, he said, what harm would there be in going into these schools where there's, you know, chaos and all these problems. He said, what harm would there be in just going and teaching them the Ten Commandments, teaching them the golden rule? You know, it couldn't do any harm. Even the non-Christians acknowledge just what advantage it is to at least hear the proclamation of of God's requirements. So, there is an advantage in many ways to not for these people, to not only to be a Jew, but for us to have a godly heritage, a Christian home, to go to church. <clears throat> Question number two is, start, is here in verse three. It says, well, what if some are unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness, or does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? See, do you see how twisted this argument, it start, this argument starts to be okay, but each question gets worse and worse and worse, as we'll see. The question is, the, the issue that's at hand is the unfaithfulness of people. <laughs> but they're tur- turning it and they're saying, well, is God unfaithful? His answer in verse 7, by no means, absolutely not, may it never be. Let God be true, though every man were a liar. Even if everybody else believed something else, God's still true. It's kind of like the other day, <laughs> we were... We had about 30 minutes before all the kids went to bed, and there's six of us in our home. And so uh, there was some disagreement about what we were going to do. We were going to play a game or do a puzzle or something. And so there was disagreement. And so one of the kids said, let's take a vote. And I said, that's great. Everybody gets a vote, and mine is worth six points. (laughs) That's the way it is with God. Everybody gets a vote, 
but it doesn't really matter. God is the majority. <clears throat> and it says God will not be unfaithful. Second Timothy 2, uh, 12 and 13. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. And then he does this. He quotes David in chapter in Psalm 51. He says at the end of verse chapter 4, or verse 4, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. If you know Psalm 51, it's a story, it's a it's a psalm of David after he had committed adultery with the wife of Uriah, as we as we're told. And he's been able to and he kills Uriah and is able to keep it secret for a year and a half or so he thinks. Until this prophet, Nathan, comes and confronts him and he tells him a story that very closely mirrors what he's done. David says, at the end of this story, he's so enraged, he says, that a man must be killed, must be held to account. And Nathan points his finger at him and says, you are that man. And what does David say? He says this in Psalm 51, In my son, against you, in you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's saying, you know what? Whatever you you do, you're completely right in doing because of my sin. And he says that. So I think there's two reasons that Paul quotes David. Number one, because he's speaking to Jews, and David was held in high esteem. He was revered by those by those Jews, and so he quotes him to prove his point. But he is also hearkening back to the entire Old Testament. See, if you believe that God is unfaithful, you've missed the entire point of all 39 chapters, 600, or 39 books of the, of the Old Testament. <clears throat> God has been faithful in the midst of all the unfaithfulness of the Jews, as we've seen in all of the Old Testament. You know, in Acts 7, I was just reading it the other day, Stephen is giving a brief synopsis of the history of the Jewish nation. And he talks about Moses. And he's saying, when Moses was at Mount Sinai, he received living oracles, again that word, oracles, to give to us. And at that time, if you remember, in Mount Sinai, he gets living oracles. And so Moses is up on this mountain with, at Mount Sinai with uh, God. And there's Caleb a little bit further behind and then there's the entire nation of Israel down at the base. And what are they, they doing? They're saying, you know what? We don't know what happened to Moses. Let's make, for a, a, let's make us a God that we can, we can worship. We can say, this is the God that helped us out. So at the, same, the very time that Moses is getting the oracles of God, think about it. What is happening? Think about all the other nations around Israel. Not one of them is being faithful to the Lord. All of them are believing a lie. But not only all the other nations, however many millions of people, the nation of Israel, as far as we can tell, every single person in the nation of Israel is saying, we believe this false God. This calf is the God, the God that we are going to trust in. He is, they're believing this lie. So at this time in the world, as far as we can tell, there's God and two people at that time believing the true God. 
everybody else unfaithful to the Lord. Everybody else believing a lie. And what does he say? God's faithful. Even in the midst of all the unfaithfulness. Or last week I was reading Matthew 1. If If you know Matthew 1, it's a genealogy of the Lord being faithful and preserving the line. He says in Genesis 1, I'm going to bring a son who's going to save the, the, the nations, all the nations. And Matthew 1 is a genealogy giving an example of all the, the ways in which he preserved that, that lineage, that remnant. <clears throat> well, if you take time and you read through some of those people, you can see that there's unfaithfulness. One of them, just one of them, Manasseh. I don't know if you know much about Manasseh. First, Second Kings 21 says this about him. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. For he built altars for the, all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And then he did this. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Do you see the unfaithfulness? There's this man who took... Here's all these temples of of other gods that he tore down. And he said, no, I'm going to be unfaithful. I'm going to be untrue. I'm going to believe a lie. Not only that, I'm going to take these altars that were that were torn down, I'm going to set them up in the house of the Lord and I'm going to offer my son on one of these altars and I'm going to believe in necromancers, just mediums and witches and that type of thing. He's in the line of which God's saying, even though everybody else is unfaithful, I will be faithful. Well, how about for us? What about if a number of people believe acts about an issue, and the Lord has made it clear that where he stands on the other side of the fence. How do you deal with that? What is your position? What do you believe to be true about God in that situation? When you hear something that contradicts the word of God, how do you respond? Or if there's a person that you held in high esteem, this man or this woman, and it's Reveal that there's a great moral failing or or something like that. Does it shake your belief in God? You know, again, I was talking to this, to my coworker, and he said, you know, I believe in God, but then he continued, he said, but the problem I have is, you know, with church, there's there's just a bunch of hypocrites and they always ask for money. You know, that's all the question that, or that's the two things that people always talk about for church, or why they never go to church because they always ask for money and it's, full of hypocrites. And I said, you know what? You know, I was just reading in Romans 3, and it says, you know, the whole church could be all hypocrites, which it really is. <laughs> and I said, um, but everybody could be saying one thing and be believing a lie. And I said, it doesn't matter. You're still accountable for what God says. We're, it doesn't matter how, what people do or what people, how people act in the sense of your accountability to God. You know, we fear man. We don't fear God. Our God is too small. But God is not threatened if he is in the majority. 
But here we come to question three. Question number three. It goes like this in verse five. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? So these people are saying, okay, Paul, we'll give you that the Jews, that we Jews were given the oracles of God and some were unfaithful. But listen, you're saying that in the unfaithfulness of these people, God still works his glory to glorify himself by his faithfulness. He's showing how good he is, how amazing he is, because he's working in these people. We've given him a chance to reveal himself for how great he is. So he can't condemn us for our sins, can he? To say that God is unrighteous. Paul can't even stop himself. He says this, I speak in a human way. He's like, just make clear, I'm not saying that God be unrighteous. This is the, the argument of humans. And then his, the answer in verse 6. By no means, absolutely not, may it never be. Because here, for then, how could God judge the world? He acknowledges, these people, these Jews acknowledged that there was going to be a final judgment. But it was going to be for these Gentiles. But he's saying, you acknowledge that there's going to be this, this judgment. But you can't have it both ways. You can't say that there's going to be this judgment, but you guys are going to be exempt from this judgment. That's what he's arguing for. He's saying, you know that there, God is going to judge the world. How could he not be not, how could he not hold all people accountable? <clears throat> and then he goes on, he says in verse 7, But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? This is a, this is a tough one. This is a tough argument here. But try to follow it. What Paul is saying is if through my lie, he's saying, okay, my lie, what you're saying is my lie, is that, that all the Jews are accountable before God. All the Jews are not exempt just because they're Jews. He's saying if you're a Jew, you're still under wrath of God. And, and so he's saying, you're saying that what I'm saying is a lie. But in my lie, God's truth abounds. Why am I still being condemned to sinner? You're saying, you're still holding me accountable for what I'm, my lie. I don't know if that made sense at all. Does that make sense? Shake hands. Yes, no? Okay, thank you. Um, and he's saying, you can't, you can't have it both ways. You can't say that my lie is, is glorifying God, and yet you're condemning me for it. You can't condemn me for that. <clears throat> I think that's his argument there. But then we come to question number four. Question number four. He says in verse 8, And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us as saying? And then we see here, at verse 1, we'd question. Verse 2, answer. Verse 3, question. Verse 4, answer. Verse 5, question. And verse 6, or 6, we had to answer. And verse 8, there's a question. There's no answer. He doesn't even give an answer to this. He says, you know what? There's no argument that will change their mind. Their condemnation is just. Now he does come back to it in chapter 6. <clears throat> he does talk about their condemnation. 
or about if we should sin, that grace may abound. So there's his argument. It's a tough series of questions. But I thought an illustration may help. Now, I understand this illustration isn't perfect. There's a lot of holes. But in so much as this argument helps you make sense of this text, um, I hope it's helpful to you. So go back to the Middle Ages. Imagine there's this king who's over a castle, and there's all the peasants around this castle. And imagine this king has a great affinity for gardening. He, he loves fruits and vegetables. And so he goes throughout the, the land to find the best techniques, the best fruits, the best vegetables. He brings back those seeds, and he brings back all that's been learned. And then he compiles a textbook of, of how to, do, to be the best gardener you can. This manual of keys and when to plant and uh, when to fertilize and how to, how to what, what grows best next to what. And he comes with this manual. And then he goes and he decides he's going to give two of the manuals to two of the peasants. So he goes and he gives it to two of these peasants. Now these two peasants, they have this manual. They have this key for how to grow great fruits and vegetables. But they seldom use it. But the king has said to these peasants, he said, you know what? Your fruits and vegetables, because they're going to be better than everybody else's, because they, I've given you the best seeds, I've given you the best techniques, I will pay you more. And so he instructs his servants who are in the castle. He said, when these two men come into the, to sell their fruits and vegetables, you are to pay them double for their fruits and vegetables. And so what happens, though, is these two peasants, they know that they're going to get paid double. And so sometimes they bring in the fruit before it's ripe. They don't follow the rules. They don't follow the manual. Other times they, they know when it's, when it's rotten. They still haven't been diligent. They've been lazy. They still bring that in. And the servants of this king are still obligated to pay t- double for these fruits and vegetables, even though in many cases it's subpar to everybody else. <clears throat> and so not, not only that, sometimes these two peasants, on their way out, they'll sell this, these fruits and vegetables. And then on their way out, they'll take some of the other fruits and vegetables and put them in their bag as they walk out. Or they'll, they'll manipulate the weight so that they get paid even more than they should. So they're, they're conniving and they're lying and they're stealing literally from this king who's been willing to pay double. And, it's, and it's give it, the king has been told about this and he says, continue to pay double. And over and over he's told, the king has been told <clears throat> until one day, these two peasants decide they are still upset and angry with the king. And so they decide they're going to go to another king across the river because it's told that this, this king has, has developed a type of a potion. This potion, this toxic chemical potion that can do great harm to whoever drinks it or partakes of it. And so they go, and he gets this, and he brings it back. And these two peasants inject their fruits and vegetables with this potion and sell it to the king. At which point, you know, there's 
obviously the, the, the ramifications are huge. Many people die. There's great disease, great sickness. But, the, but some are spared. And it's well known that these two peasants are the cause of this. And so the king decides that he's going to, to bring these two peasants in. So he brings in the first peasant. And he says, I know that you've been guilty of, of this. I know that you've, what you've done. And I said, tomorrow you will come back and you will be hanged on the gallows. Well, the second peasant is outside the door and he hears this and then he's brought inside. And so there's the, the what's left of the, the knights or whoever else is the part of the, the king's court and they're all watching and they're getting ready to watch this happen again. And the king says again, he says, I know what you've done. It's been proven that you've killed many. Much harm has been done. Tomorrow you will come back to the kingdom and you will be my son. At which the point there's an eruption of, of anger and talking about the injustice. Now here's a question for you. If you are that peasant, you realize what you've been saved from. Here's a question. Would you go back that next day, would you go to that king? And would you become his son? Or would you go back to your house and live the same way? That's the argument that's being made here. He said, should we do evil that good may come about? That's the argument that Paul's going to make in chapter 6. If this peasant understands what he's been saved from, from the sin and the punishment of it, of his own consequences, there's no way he's going to go back. He's going to do everything that the king asks. Well, I hope that illustration helps in a couple other ways in the sense of making sense of these arguments. Number one, these two peasants were given the manual, were given the oracles of this king, in a sense. So So were these peasants any better off Yes, in a sense, they were a bit better off because they had the oracles. But they were unfaithful. They did not follow through. They followed a lie. So, But the king was still faithful in buying the fruits and buying the vegetables. <clears throat> but God was righteous. He, for, that, for that, that first peasant, was he righteous to condemn him and hang him on the gallows? Of course he was. Now, what's lacking in the story and illustration is obviously somebody has to pay for the, the sins of the second peasant, which is part of this story that's lacking. But we know that Christ has paid for our sins. We have been united with Christ. We are in union with Christ. And so I ask you again the question, when a thought or an idea that's been torn down that you have believed, how do you respond do you just try to rebuild what you can of this man-made temple, of this building? Or do you submit to the Lord and allow Him to transform your life? How you respond is critical. This tells us we need to be very careful how we respond to sin. So today, are you trusting in your good works? 
Bible says there is like filthy rags. The sweet word of the gospel is our sins are far more dark than we can believe. But the beauty of Christ is it's far more glorious than we can imagine. Or are you a Christian today? When you see this in your own life, do you thank him that you are saved? Do you repent of those times that you've been offended or that you have offended your Heavenly Father and ask him to help you be different by the power of his might? I hope this has been helpful for you. Let's pray. Thank the Lord for this time. God, thank you for your word. I thank you for hard texts. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. I thank you for your Christ, who paid our debt, who has freed us to be in union with you, to delight in your goodness. I pray that we would understand that in a small way today. In Jesus' name, amen.